Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, I got a surprise last week. Uh, Clive Farrington, the lead singer, went in Rome, was on the show a while ago. And I saw a post on Facebook. He was giving tickets out. I don't know how he has the hookup to the Greek theater for the group. Yes. Now, I had talked to the lovely Joanne about going to the concert because the first concert I ever saw was the Philadelphia Spectrum. And I think I was in eighth or ninth grade. And it was Yes. And then Rick Wakeman left and some other guys left. And then Yes was joined by Trevor Buggles and Jeff Downs, who were both played Video Killed the Radio Star, the first video ever on MTV. And I was lucky enough years ago, I was at uh, my friend's Super Bowl party and Jeff was there and this other guy, John Payne, who ended up being in Asia. And I was like, wow, you know, it was crazy. It was very surreal to see those guys. And then I ran into Jeff like a few weeks later and I had beers with him. And now he's back with Yes. So it's just weird how everything goes full cycle. You know, I saw the guy back when I was in like eighth or ninth grade. Then I saw him at a Super Bowl party. Then I drank beers with him and now I'm seeing him at the Greek. So that's just my story. So that's only two weeks. I'll talk about it when, when I get done. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, my guest is a very funny guy. And we're doing Cooper Ball uh, Talk backwards today. We're going to start with his project. Then we're going to talk about his career. My guest is Mario Joyner. How you doing, Mario? I'm good. How are you doing? It's funny because you came yesterday, which I, that it's, sometimes guests don't show up. And we miscommunicated. And I feel, for like to me, I feel awful. That's me trying to avoid uh, being put in the category of being on color people time. I want to be extra, extra early, so I come a day early, and I also over-tip, too. I, 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 I do that do, also. Do, do you, you, I saw some of your posts when you were just in D.C. with uh, What's that about? Jerry. Yeah. yeah. Now, you went to a nice Italian restaurant. Do you like good food? I mean, what's your, what's your strand of food you like the best? I love good food. I eat every meal out. That's the kind of guy I am. I don't cook. I figure with all these people who can actually cook, why would I try to step on the toes of a professional? You know, when I go out of town, people ask me, you want to come over to my house for a home-cooked meal? My question is, is there a chef in that home? Yeah. <laughs> who, who's cooking in this home? You know, people, people, it's the house that's cooking, you know. No. I cook all the time, but because I worked in restaurants for a long time. That's so, good. You so, can cook. That's yeah, good. So, but you sit there and you go, after a while, because I have to watch my sodium for a health condition, and you just, you look at it, and you, you see, like, I always check, I'm like the sodium Nazi. Mm-hmm. I look at, like, okay, I tell my girlfriend, I go, Wait, did you add salt to that? And she's like, uh, a little. I go, don't even put salt in it. She goes, honey, I'm, bo- I'm making, and she's Italian. She goes, I'm making pasta. I have to put salt, salt in the has water. To be in it, yes. And I'm like, no. And then eggplant. They always have to sit there and put salt on it to drain. And I'm like, I'll eat bitter eggplant. Just don't give me a damn heart attack. Right, exactly. I like all sorts of food. My Indian's one of my favorites. I like Italian food. Um, but everywhere I go, if I go to a different country, I'll eat whatever they say is the delicacy that you're supposed okay. to eat there. You know, I've tried alligator. I've tried rattlesnake. You know, <laughs> I was in Hong Kong. I didn't try everything over there. Right. But, you know, <laughs> I have... I have a, a a palette for just about anything. I like to try, try something. You know, That's once good. At least. Well, we, we know you you do a lot of stand up. You have a very you have a very successful career. But we're going to talk first about digital Dan. Mm-hmm. Now, this is your project. And now, after doing stand up for all those years, and I'm, and you did, we'll talk about you were with, in Hanging with the Homeboys, which I actually love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. I'm sorry, that was a great ass movie. Well, that's funny. You love that movie. See, every time I meet a Latino guy that's about my age, they just love it. You know, and only Latino guys because See, you know it was a it was a Latino movie with a couple Nestor of black guys. Nestor Serrano. Yeah, Nestor Serrano. Yes. <laughs> no, I like that movie. I remember that's that because I remember watching you on uh, MTV uh, Half Hour Comedy Hour, hosting it, which I auditioned, and I was funny because I auditioned Keith Robinson got it and Jim Florentine got it. They were the oh, you only ones who got it. Yeah, because oh, I was. Wow. Like, and I can see why Keith was. Now Jim, Jim's a great guy, but I was like, wait a second, man, he's got long hair. He has no, eye. but you know, it just changes, right? Right. But, uh, but so, so the digital Dan, explain to the listeners what the uh, project is about and how you came up with the idea. Because I know you very seem to be very tech savvy, or you're very into that world. I am. I came up with the idea of Digital Dan, which is basically a show, a web series I want to do about a guy who becomes obsessed with his digital devices. And not only does he become obsessed with them, he actually communicates with them on a different level. Uh, he catches a computer virus that enables him to see data beings, which lives in everybody's, you know, devices. Right. But people can't see them, you know. So he's the only one that can see them and talk to him because he has this special little virus called the Jarbine virus. I came up with it because I wrote a little short story about me being a Mac addict. Now, you're a big Mac guy? Big Mac guy, yeah. I was a PC guy first. When Mac, uh, the Mac store started opening up, I just switched over from PC to Mac. And I've been the Mac guy ever since. And I just love the concept. I remember you had to take your computer and mail it, put it in a box, and mail it back to the people for them right. to fix it, like Gateway 2000 and Compact. <laughs> Remember this nonsense? And ever since that day, I was like saying to myself, what, what, what kind of nonsense is How come you can't take your computer somewhere? You know, and when the, so when the Apple stores opened up, and you can take your computer, go down there, talk to a genius, <laughs> sit at the bar, you know? 
It just blew my mind. I thought it was the greatest thing. So I became a Mac person, and I wrote this little story about me going to Mac stores all over the world. Every time I go to a city, you know, some guys go to a bar, go to a strip club, I would go to the Mac store. And, you, and so just to check it out, see what products they have? Always. See just technology is different? The whole, I just love the whole idea of you're going there, and all these people are milling around with these great products, and you ever notice the places are so clean, and, you know, the shelves are never overstocked. It's just the neatest place in the world, all over the world. It's, like, amazing. So I made a joke about how... I got to get cut off from the from the genius bar. You know they were cutting me funny. off. They cut me off from the genius bar. So well, that that's funny. Thing. Starting right, that's funny. It's like yeah, when you go, I've only gone once, but it's like everyone knows everything. You know, and that, that's what's amazing. It's like that's like I'm I'm a technical doofus. Okay, I mean I actually I won a MacBook, uh, a Mac Pro, on like from drinking um, Sobe water, and I sold it to a friend because I I have my own laptop. Oh, okay. so I couldn't figure it out. But so you you so you just you love the Mac. I love the Mac. I love the Mac. I, th- I, I would live in an Apple store if I could. If I could have that nice, light-colored concrete floor, <laughs> with, you know, with the beige, you know, uh, uh, one, one step up from Ikea furniture that they have there, I, I love it, you know. So I wrote that story, and then I decided I wanted to do something on a um, platform called TubeStart, which is a new um, crowdfunding platform, which is basically more like a fan-based um, uh, fundraising platform. It's only for fans, and it's... Uh, you you have a YouTube channel and your YouTube channel goes straight to that. And if you set up something on there, like you can even do a, a web blog, you know, uh, as long as it's on video and you can ask uh, people to donate money and contribute to your project. So I got into that and uh, I put it up on TubeStart and now I'm just trying to raise the money to do the first four short little episodes so that I can have uh, basically proof of concept and basically have an actual show that people can subscribe to and I would just do the show like in little four minute episodes. Now what was your process taking it from that short story to, I mean, the short story seems like it was probably end up being like the treatment. Well, uh, well, to be honest with you, it, it went through a lot of uh, uh, incarnations. It started as a short story. Then when I did it as Digital Dan, uh, uh, a man in his a man who wants to be left to his own devices. I made it a pilot. It's it's in it's in pilot form. Okay. I have it in a yeah full forty five page pilot. You know, and uh, sent it around. You know, but it's 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 kind of weird that the guy catches a virus and he's getting a divorce and he's so obsessed with all this Apple stuff and <laughs> he goes to a uh, intervention where they there's a bunch of other people who have this same problem but they can't see things that are in their devices they just can't put their devices down so he goes to that you know that little meeting so it it's actually a pilot that I cut into four pieces and said I'll tell the four stories that leads up to that that's actually comprised of the pilot okay no it's funny cuz the, the preview cuz I watched it but it's funny cuz you go out it's like it's like you're sneaking you know it's like it's with your computer it's like someone you know who goes to smoke yeah. sneaks people sneak cigarettes it's like that and that's what's funny and your wife catches you he it, catches, it's, it's, it's in, funny in that RV that you see the 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 more blown out version he lives in an RV, which he's obsessed with anyway. It's supposed to be an Airstream because that was the first thing he was obsessed with. You notice it's silver like the Apple. And right, exactly. <laughs> so he's got, it's that deep. <laughs> it's that crazy and that deep. So he's sneaking the stuff in there. And in that RV, he has all sorts of boxes of Apple stuff that he hasn't even opened yet. This is why his wife is so upset. She thinks he's bringing gifts to her. You know, and right. he, she comes out to me like, who are you talking to? You know, so. Now, how did you find the people you cast in it? Because there's, a, uh, there's a, a guy and two women. There's a guy and two women. Uh, those guys, th- those people are actually, um, one's an actress and the other four are comedians. Okay. That I have acting, uh, Maranzio Vance, very funny guy. Okay. Comedian, uh, Siddiqui Fuller, very funny guy. Uh, a girl who started out doing comedy once she moved here from Sweden. Her name is uh, Reva Stieg. And I found them by going, you know what? I don't have any money to give these actors. I'm going to try to entice them into you know, doing this for me. And then they can see how good of a thing this is to be a part of. And they were all starting out. I mean, I don't know how much experience they have. Maranzio's pretty funny. He's been in a few things. But the other people, not much experience. But they were willing to go for it. And I said, if you do this and this happens... It's my show. You, you, you'll be the guys in the web series, right? You know? it's, it's amazing. People do. I mean, people do it all the time. You know, I mean, it's a matter of it's it's exposure. I mean, the funny thing is, exactly. it's something, and it's something. If you're a stand up, it's not like you know. There's certain shows where like they're just putting clips on that they don't pay you. That's your stand up. But if you're an actor, it's something where you can sit there. And if you want to cross that bridge, no one's just going to put you in a show if you don't have any real or tape or unless you don't know anyone so this is great because because then if it you know when you get it financed they get to be in all the episodes exactly it, it can't hurt them at all and i made a promise to them you know that let's say this thing was to take off and somebody big got interested well the rules of hollywood you know let's say i don't know 
some big actor went, I, I want to be you know, Victor in it. I said, even myself, I'm not Digital Dan if so-and-so comes, if a star comes along and goes, well, what about that Dan thing? Well, he could be Digital Dan. I'll move aside. And they've all agreed to that, too. But if it happens like that, they will be in every episode somewhere. They will be able to be in everything. That's the deal I make with them. And that's fair. I mean, because, you know, it's the thing. If a big star comes, well, the, what people don't look at is if a big star comes, then it, more people are going to watch it. Exactly. And then if they're in every episode, people are going to notice them. And then, hey, they might get something out of it. Plus, it's always a chance that you can go, you know, he's the one who originated the role when it started as a web series in its incarnation. That's also valuable, too, if you know how to use that, you know. And those guys understand that. Maranzio understand. They all understand. Yeah, just be a part of this. And when something happens with this, I made the promise that, you know, nobody will be forgotten that helped me out with it. Now, why'd you decide to go with Tube Start? I mean, because there's so many. There's Indiegogo. There's, uh, there's uh, whatever, the one that guy raised all the money for the macaroni, the Kick, potato Kickstarter salad. And, uh, you hear about that, right? No. Some guy sat there. And this, this is just crazy. This guy, <laughs> as a joke, said for Kickstarter, he goes, I've never made potato salad. People give me money to make potato salad. Well, it somehow became viral. And everyone's mm. giving three dollars. The guy raised thirty-five thousand dollars mm. to make potato salad. I'm so jealous and, now. And that's and what that sucks though is it's like Indiegogo is a good venue, or any of these are a good venue for people who don't have the money and want to do a project, or people who have some money but they don't want to. You know, if they can give something back, you know, they exactly. They, if you can give a perk that's worth it, I mean, it's right. fine. You but, know. but when someone does it as a, a mockery and people just start doing it, and one thing it's funny, but then it's also it shows that a system. Oh my I mean, god, I hadn't heard about this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was on the new. I mean, he made like ended up being like I think ended up being like forty five thousand. So now he, I guess you have to use that money. So I guess he's going to do a live show and make potato salad and send potato salad to people, and it's just crazy. Well, but, that's kind of good. I mean, as long as he sticks to it, he was he started out doing it as mock. Right. But then they get somebody gave him the money. But just, it's crazy how the, the internet is like yeah. that. Shit just blows up. So so now how'd you pick uh Tube Start? Yeah. Well tubes I did a Kickstarter campaign once, you know, and the Kickstarter campaign the thing I didn't like was no matter how much money it's a uh, uh it's not a flexible campaign. Kickstarter is all or nothing. But I did that because I liked it, and I, I, it was the first one that I came across. And that, I didn't get the money, although I raised quite a bit of money for this uh, film I was trying to do. So then the next time, I know the guy who um, was one of the co-founders of TubeStart, and that's why I went with TubeStart, because I just like the concept of the money can come to you, plus they have this great little platform where you can get um, your perks are automatically generated by companies that actually generate the perks Every day, a t-shirt companies, Cafe Press is involved, uh, a spread shirt is involved, and what you do is you put on your website, on your um, page, uh, a Digital Dan mug, and when people order it, I get my cut from it, and the other people get their cut from it, and it goes to the people who bought it right away as a perk. Whereas with Indiegogo and uh, Kickstarter, they had a problem getting people their perks, because the actual artists had to come up with it and had to get the perk and distribute it. But these are professionals. Uh, who, who generate these perks and send them out. So people always get their perks. Now, why is it that it only goes through... So people have to go to your YouTube channel to get on this? No, no. But the YouTube channel is where they store the videos. Like when I make a video that's an update, uh, you link it to your YouTube channel. I put it on my YouTube channel, and it links it straight to TubeStart. So they don't have to go there. That's just the place that holds the videos, you know, like because uh, they don't have a big enough, uh, what do you call it, database to hold them at, at TubeStart, which is what they do with all of them. You know, everybody yeah. does it like that. But we, they picked uh, YouTube for some reason, and it's all integrated through YouTube and Google something. So Google Plus, or yeah, Google, yeah it's, there's so many different things. Like I, I'm a, I'm a Google guy with an Android and the PC. And my girlfriend's an iPhone person with the iPad. So it's just like there's all these clouds. In there's no place. stress in the family. Yeah, no, there's no. not at all. It's like <laughs> she, I just say, look at your tablet. Right. Uh, so, so anyone can, so anyone can go on to the. Uh, TubeStart and just and find your project. Sure, sure. TubeStart.com, uh, Digital Dan, or um, if they get the link, you can go right to it on the link. We don't have a we don't have a um, a app yet, you know. But uh, it, it's it, anyone can go on and just find TubeStart.com and you'll see uh, and search for Digital Dan and it'll come up and you anybody can donate money. We'll take money from anybody. Now you're 25 days left. You're uh, you're halfway there. Yeah. Now, if you don't make it, did you? Can you use that money? That yes. You, so, see, that's good. This that, is flexible. In yeah. fact, the great thing about this is I've already shot some of those um, updates and stuff, and we're using the money to do the, even that. So, it's already going on. It's already being uh, done now, and it's very organic. What we're trying to do is make it so those four episodes that we said we're going to show, we're going to get those done. 
no matter how much money I get. See, but $10,000 is a good to make it so that you know we know we can get them done really, really nicely. See, that's a great idea. I mean, just said you can you can use the money as it comes in because that, that stinks if you're excited about a project and if you don't get it, then everyone who else is excited about the project, they're not going to sit there if, they, if you put it in one thing and it didn't matter. But that's, that's a great thing. So you, you're constantly doing stuff with the project, using the funds, but it, it's... It stays, the level you've got stays. It doesn't stay. Yeah, it stays okay. at 10,000. So like, for instance, like I was smart enough to go, you know what? Let's shoot one of these right now. So I already shot one of those, you know, the first one that, that we're talking about, which is, I think, uh, iPad is a perk or something like that. I forget what the first one is, but you shoot the first one in, in the way of doing that because you have the money to do it. So I'll just go ahead and do it. So that way you got it. You know, since you have halfway through, you should have something to show. So that's already done. I'm going to do the next two or three, even with the 5,000, 6,000, whatever I get, you can, there's ways you can actually do it and show the people that you're working on it and they're not just throwing money at you and you're just pocketing your money and not intending to do it, you know. Now, how do you figure out the perks? Like, what are some what are some of the perks that people can get on this project? Like, well, is, what, is there a mug? There, there's, a, there's a couple of perks that are, are you know, like, perks are things like, you know, you try to figure out what someone would like that, that you can offer that's special. Like for, like, for instance, here's a perk where they can come see me perform. You know, $75, you get two tickets. Uh, working at the Laugh Factory, any place in town here. There's another perk uh, where I'm having a, uh, a VIP show. It's for $400, where they'll come see just the show with just me if I get enough of those. Just you. It'll, yeah. be, it'll be you. Me and, like, for instance, at the Laugh Factory, if they come, or at the, uh, at the uh, um, Improv, I'll just put them on the guest list, and they'll come, and they'll get to see the show that I'm on. But if they donate the hundred dollars, if enough people donate that, I'll set aside some time, take out and do a show of my own somewhere. Just and those them. people will be invited to see me do maybe like thirty five, forty minutes uh, of of stand up, you know. And um, there's other things we got like, uh, uh, you know, they came out with this new thing called the uh, the biddable perk, <laughs> which is basically you can bid on the perk. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's eBay meets uh, crowdfunding. <laughs> so let's say you have. Uh, the camera that I'm using right now, and you want to get an upgrade to the camera that you, to use for the actual series, I take my tape camera, which is a fantastic camera, Canon uh, XH-A1, and I say, starting at $400, you know, bid on this, and then just see if the bids go up, and you give it to the highest bidder over $400, you know. That way you get that money, and you give that up, and it uh, all goes towards me getting a better camera, which may be a... I don't know, a Canon, one of those uh, um, cameras with a card in it. You know? Okay. Like this is a tape camera. It's got tape. And nobody uses tape right. anymore, but it's a good camera. It's a workhorse, but I want to get something else. So um, that's how you come up with the perks. You got to be very clever and very, you know, uh, inventive with what the perks are going to be. You know, of course, I got a poster I could sign. I have a DVD of me doing stand-up that's never been seen before when I was on tour with Chris Rock and uh, for his um, uh, Kill the Messenger tour. You know, before he shot that, they had me on stage and they set the cameras, you know, and the big swooping cameras. And I'm doing my set so I can show that. And I put that in a DVD. It's called Where Did I Put Those Bits? You know, <laughs> Where Did I Put Those Sets? And I can give that away for $25 as a perk, you know, which is great. And there's another one, um, Where Did I Put Those Bits? Which is a audio um, CD that I'm also giving away for $20. You give me okay. $20, you get that, you know. So. It's amazing how it's changed. I, I remember, like, back in Philly, back in the day, we had, like, some comics who wanted to be filmmakers, and they are always, you know, they had to raise, like, $10,000 for their student project. And back then, that was, like, a 10-minute film. But then these are kids, they just, you couldn't go online. It would be like, hey, man, you know, you, you had to money? really, really yeah. go out and, and, and ask hustle. for the money yeah, and hustle for the money. Like, we're like, no, man, we're doing open mics. We don't have the money for you. Well, now, it's, it is really amazing, isn't it? You know, you can put this thing up, and you can get somebody to give you $45,000 for potato salad. Exactly. I mean, come on. So, uh, so that's cool. People check that out and uh, it's TubeStart and uh, I guess you search Digital Dan. TubeStart.com Digital Dan. Right, now I want to talk about your career. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. About, I, said, so I said, I'm doing it backwards, people. See, because I always get, I always, I'm always afraid on time, like, because you've had a very long career. You always sit there, go, okay, we got to get time for his project. Then you go, wait a second. And it's always, it's always crazy. <laughs> so I, I know you're, you're from Pittsburgh. Yes. Okay. Now, were you a funny kid? Were you, did you? I mean, what made you travel this road into very comedy? funny kid? Always knew I was going to try comedy, even when I was very, very young. But I had a track scholarship. I would have tried it right out of high school, but I was the only one in, the, in my family that you know was going to go to college at that time. I'm third out of uh, eight kids, and uh, did pretty well in school. I had a track scholarship, so I went on and 
took the free college. <laughs> Where'd you go? At a full ride. University of Pittsburgh. Okay, so you're a, you're a Panther. Yes. So you, I, my, I'm a big Eagles fan, Shady McCoy. I don't yeah, know if you're a football okay. fan. But no, well, not anymore. I used to be. You know, in Pittsburgh, you have to be a, uh, a, Steeler, uh, a Steeler fan, <laughs> especially back then. I graduated high school in 79. So if you remember those years, you know, God, yes. <laughs> Steelers and uh, the Pirates were just uh, killing everybody. So, I love, I love those yeah. Pirates teams. So, so you, you went to college to do a track scholarship. Right, track scholarship. And then, you know, I would have started, as I said, right out of high school because I was funny all through high school, you know. I wasn't the class clown because to me, class clown is not a funny guy. It's just an annoying guy, you know. Exactly. But I was always making up songs and singing and entertaining people and cracking on people. And so I went to college and just before I got out, I started going to these comedy clubs, Pittsburgh Comedy Club and the Funny Bone. Jeff Schneider, right? Yes, Schneider Brothers, the Panic Brothers. So the first club I went to was on a Monday night. They had open mic at the Pittsburgh Comedy Club and Tuesday night, at the Funny Bone. So I just took that in. I went to both nights while I was in college, last year of college. And meanwhile, I was supposed to go to the Olympics or at least try to go in 84. That was my year I was supposed to try to go. And uh, I got hurt and did not make the team. What did didn't, you run? I ran the 400 hurdles and I didn't even make the uh, the trials that year. I was I was close. I had the, I had the uh, I won the Big East and I had the uh, Pitts record for the 400 hurdles. But... Um, I was concentrating on this comedy thing, just going back and forth. I didn't let anybody know for the first, I don't know, five or six months. And then finally I got my first paid gig as the house MC, and I, I also worked at a place called um, Depot 51. <laughs> it's like a little bar in, in, Union, in Uniontown. And it was my first paying gig, $50. And from that point on, I, I, I was a comedian. And I always say that uh, I started 31 years ago, so it was like November 11th, 1983, I guess it was. So, you know, that was my first day on stage. And a few weeks later, like maybe December of that year, just before Christmas, I got that paying gig. Now, how long did you stay in Pittsburgh? Stayed in Pittsburgh till uh, 86. Because I'm trying to think. Pittsburgh, there was some, uh, who were some of the comic? Well, later it was like Frank Nicotero's from Pittsburgh. and Yeah, he's a little after me. But uh, Dennis Miller was okay. on his way out of there when I was coming up. Like Dennis Miller, uh, I remember working with him in 1984. January 1984, like New Year's when it turned to 84, and he had the great joke he went on and says, so this George Orwell thing was just a, right. <laughs> just a fluke, huh? I guess it was just, <laughs> it was just it was something he just said, great book, but nothing. Waited a whole year. Maybe it was when it, in 85, when 84 was over. <laughs> so, and he was out of there after that, you know, so it was uh, me, and there's another guy named John Knight, uh, Billy Elmer. I remember those guys. Uh, I remember Billy Martin, Billy Martin. Who writes for Bill Martin. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, pretty funny guys came out of there. So you're working out of Pittsburgh. So then you sit there and you get to a point where, you, what point did you say, I got to get out of here? I well, gotta... I won the Pittsburgh Laugh Fall. Woohoo! Yes, that's, that's, that's right. right. At Marco and Antonio's. And the, <laughs> <laughs> I won the Pittsburgh Laugh Off. And the first prize for the Pittsburgh Laugh Off was you won a trip to New York City to perform at Catch a Rising Star. Louis Veranda days. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the judge, the person who judged the Pittsburgh Laugh Off, flew all the way in from New York was Rick Messina. Rick okay. Messina? Messina Baker. So he judged it, liked me. Uh, I went to New York, went on a stage at the uh, Catch a Rising Star, killed, passed, as they say. And uh, while I was there, I also passed at the comic strip, and I also passed at the uh, improv. But the improv took a little doing. I went back twice, because Silver Friedman, Bud Friedman's wife, she was running the improv there in New York. And uh, I went on stage. I thought I had a good set. But uh, she pulls me to the side and goes, I want you to come back, and I want you to leave the mic in the stand. <laughs> you know what's funny? <laughs> I, I went there one night with my friend Ray Panetti. And uh, he was a guy who lived in the town next to me when I moved to North Jersey. Mm -hmm. And she went, well, you got laughs. But I want to see more of the way you're here talking to the people at the bar than being on stage. And I'm like, well, I, I thought it was stand-up. I, 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 you know, now looking back, you know, but, but then everyone did jokes, you know. It, it, so it, you know, it, it, these people who were in charge, it was just funny what they would come up with. Right. I laughed, almost <laughs> laughed right at her because I thought she was kidding. And I'm going, oh, she's not kidding. She wanted to see me do it. With the mic stand, with the mic in the stand, and I didn't know why. So next time I came in, I did it like that, you know. So I went on three times before she passed me finally. So, so now, did, did you move to New York then? I moved to New York right after that. I moved to New York after I did. Uh, no, I didn't move to New York. New York right then. When I went up there for that, I went stayed up there for two weeks. Stayed with a friend of mine, George Kalfa. Then I went back to Pittsburgh and I got a call to do comedy tonight. 
Okay, I remember that Bill show. Bill Boggs, Comedy Tonight. I remember because it was on like Channel 9. And after I, did, after I did that, I moved to New York and stayed with a friend of mine who was working for Pepsi Cola, who was my college buddy. Yeah, Garland Brown, stayed with him. Do you remember what your war on Comedy Tonight? Cause I, I remember, sure do. Cause Glenn, oh you, know, you know Glenn Farrington? Yes, I know Glenn His, Farrington. He has a clip he put up, and he was just wearing, and it was, it was the 80s look, we all dressed that way, but I look at it, and he put it up, and I'm like, that's just atrocious. I everybody, everybody wore like the, but back then, you know, the, everyone put the blazers up in the sleeves, or they wore like, uh, like this looks like the silk jacket that Simon made popular. That was a signature comic thing, wasn't yeah. it? Rolling the sleeves up on the blazers. It's like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? What did you <laughs> wear? Look, you were, what did you look wear? Like you're, look like you're working. I wore a red V-neck sweater <laughs> with these tan pants, and I, you know, I looked crazy. I looked crazy. This <laughs> shirt, <laughs> the sweater was too tight. <laughs> But you know, I thought I was styling. You know, we'll do my first TV spot. You know, and I, uh, I did okay, did well. But that was just such a weird little show to do. It was just so strange. I got to find that clip because it's very funny. I got to find that clip. So, so you do that, and then you move to New York. Then I moved to New York. Now you passed in the club, so that's good. And start working immediately at Catch Rides and Star pretty regularly. And everybody was coming through there then. You know, Chris Rock, you know. Uh, I passed before Chris Rock. He always teases me because, you know, he has such a hard time passing. And I come in town, I pass right away, you know. <laughs> and he would go on. He would have to go on late and after me and stuff. He just used to hate it. But everybody was there. You know, I was working. Uh, I met Jerry Seinfeld a couple weeks before that, before I moved there, worked with him on the road. And everybody that I worked with in these clubs on the road when I was working at the uh, Funny Bone, because they had a bunch of Funny Bones, you know. Right. And I would go to middle at these funny bones, you know, the one in Tennessee, there's one in uh, Westport and St. Louis. They were just all over. So every time somebody would come to the club in Pittsburgh, that's the headlining, they would say, you should move to New York. You should move to New York. I heard that for like about six or seven months. So finally, you know, I, I got my little break and I, I went on and moved up there and uh, gave it a shot. But um, while working there in New York City, it's just the greatest place to work because the comedians are just really trying to be funny comics. They're not preoccupied with trying to get a sitcom. Right. Now, I know it comes out of there, you know, but they're just trying to be the funniest comic that they can. At that time, they were, you know. Well, yeah, that's what I noticed also when I talk about in Philadelphia, you know, the, the, when we would do the open mics and even start working, if you walked in like acting like, oh, well, um, and I, you, know, you would know as soon as you, if a comic wasn't a comic, you would know. It's like, exactly. it's like the old thing, like, you know, like the old, in, a, in Animal House and they walk into the, Otis is playing, they walk into the bar, they don't belong. You know, that's like for us, if a guy walked in, you'd be like, what? What you, well, my age? No, no. You should be but fighting you, yeah. to get your jokes together. Yeah, it's like you don't come in here because you, with your leg warmers, wanting to get on stage. Yeah. You know, you got to do comedy. So you're doing that. So now, now, the TV boom was starting then. So I know you hosted MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour. Start hosting MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour uh, in 1988. What happened before that is uh, I got uh, picked to do the warm-up gig for The Cosby Show. Like almost right after I got to New York, like eighty six, and they filmed December, that in New York. And they filmed it in New York in Astoria, and it was a great gig to have. Although I didn't really, I didn't really appreciate how good it was, you know, because I don't want to think, oh, I'm out there with Cosby, he'll see me. I just did my little warm up, you know, and this and that, you know. And he was always watching and saying, you know, you <laughs> didn't want you to curse or say anything. I mean, I kept it clean and nice, but you know, they got the kids out there, and it's Cosby, it's on Cosby set, so you're very, very. Uh, uh, you know, conscious of trying to keep things really, really Cosby squeaky clean. But I did that for like a whole season. And uh, then I did a couple more of those at, uh, on Kate and Alley, you know, became a warm-up guy doing that. Did you like that? I heard sometimes it can be a really long day. It can day. be a very long day. Ridiculously long day. I mean, no, I did not like it because you had no control. And uh, there were some days that went real well because they were moving, moving right along. But it's just not a gig. It's a gig you do when you're young and you're starting out. And you go ahead and you do it because, you know, it, it, it pays and, you know, you get to be funny here and there. But um, I did that for a little bit. Then uh, I did the half-hour comedy. I did First of all, I did Funny Papers for MTV. I remember that. The Funny Papers. That was the first. And me, Kevin Meany, someone else. I can't remember who. Me, Kevin Meany, and a couple other comedians did this thing called Funny Papers. And from that, I met the guy, uh, Bruce Letty, that does... Uh, wound up doing the half hour comedy hour and they picked me as the host when i was going to do that job ken ober and uh, colin quinn were doing uh, remote control right and <laughs> here's how good it was at mtv 
first of all, everybody was young. Doug Herzog was 31 years old. He was the oldest guy there, you know. And there's all these Emerson graduates, you know. So it was like a little club that they were in. But I would come in there and I said to Quinn, I said to Colin Quinn, yeah, they want me to do this show on MTV. The half hour come with me to host it. He says, you got to do it. I go, well, they're not paying these. They're paying plenty. Don't worry about what you're getting paid. Just do it. You know, you have to do it. It's the new thing, John. You'll be on TV every day. You'll be on TV. You'll be you'll be on TV every day, twice a day. This is something I didn't even take advantage of that. Think of it. MTV is the only show that's in comes with the cable package. Right. So twice a day I'm on television. Had I known, I, I just didn't take advantage of that. I could have been I could have blew up like crazy. I just would go on bars and people, hey, he's on TV. Hey, he's right here, you know. I treated it like it was nothing. I really did not appreciate the weight that that had, you know. So now people started recognizing you. Oh, like crazy. So like what crazy. was that like? Because I mean, well, I'm sure you got recognition because of track. Because I mean, it's not like, but nothing like this. Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm sure at University of Pittsburgh. You know, you were, you were a track star. I was so. a guy. I, people knew me because I was very outgoing, and you know, I, I was a, a, a scholarship athlete, and I was I, I was pretty well known for running even in, in age groupers when I was younger, you know. But it was nothing like this. I mean, I went to New York. I would go to. Uh, catch do a set do three sets at catch do a set go down the street to a place called american american trash and they would have a tv on and i just vj'd or whatever you know that week and they start playing the stuff that you're on so my segment comes on you're standing here talking to some girl and you're on tv oh, that's yeah it's amazing it. that's uh you know lou dimaggio sure he said he told me a story on here that uh he knew comedy like was on so much TV that he was doing a set at Catch and his buddy lived right near there. So he went to his buddy's place to hang out before he had to come back for the next act. And his buddy had A&E on and he was on the TV. And it's like, for, and it's just because back then it was on and MTV just played that and played that played and played like that. crazy. And you know, I did all these other shows too. You did uh, Evening at the Improv, you know. You, you would do all of them and you'd do pretty much the same set. I, maybe I stretched out 30 minutes and you'd cut it up in little chunks, you know, but you could be seen on TV anywhere back then, just everywhere. It was just got so saturated, you know. But it was fun. It was a fun little run. Now, were you going on the road then, too, or were you just mostly staying Sure, I was York? tearing the road up. I was doing this, uh, you, know, you know, NACA, right? Yeah. Well, one year at NACA, you know, it was just, I, I can't believe the money I made, you know. <laughs> they say back, college. it was crazy back then. Oh, my God. $5,000 a pop or something like that. And then you would just line up like 30 of these colleges, 40 of these colleges. It was just amazing. You know, I bought a house that year. It was great. It was fantastic. So now you're transitioning to acting. Now you were you were you were doing stand up. Now I know you were in hanging with the homeboys. Mm -hmm. Now how'd that come about? Like got you, that because of the half hour comedy hour. Did you did you want to act or were you just did you really want to do stand up more? Or what was your feeling about that? No 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 no. I wanted to break into that. You know, I kind of figured you know yeah I want to act. You know, but I, I've I've always known I was going to be a stand up and I wasn't going to stop doing that. But uh, the first movie I did was um, Three Men and a Baby. Right. I was in that, 1987. I was the guy driving the cab that picked them up when they was going to the airport to get the baby before the woman took off with them, you know. So I did that, and it just seemed like the thing to do. And I knew I was probably gonna eventually move to L.A. But, you know, I don't know if I really pursued it as hard as I should have, you know. I mean, I took a year of acting classes down at HB Studios, you know, but not classically trained at all, you know, not that you need that now. <laughs> but... Uh, I just thought it was a natural thing to do after being on TV. Well, just go be in a movie too. You know, just try to be in a couple of movies, you know. So that's why I did that. Yeah, I, lo I says I liked hanging with the homeboys. I don't know, it's just, just and it was Leguizamo. And Solid it was movie, yeah. Dougie John Leguizamo's first movie, Dougie Doug, John Leguizamo, Nesta Serrano, and Mario Jordan. Yeah. See, that's good though. That, was, that must have been fun though, because it was all young guys, yeah, and you probably all, you probably weren't. You probably none of you really knew exactly what you were doing on the movie. Set. No, even the director Joe Vasquez may rest in peace. You know, but he was a guy that uh, he, they had gave him. He was a, a young Latino uh, uh, director, and he had got a, a deal to do a movie from New Line. Believe it or not, New Line when New Line was small before New Line was bought from somebody who had a lot of money. <laughs> but that that was that movie was done by New Line Cinema. So you do that, and you're in New York. And so now, when do you decide to come to L.A.? I mean, I decided to come to L.A partly because of the weather in New York and after coming back and forth to LA visiting during the winter, I started thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing in New York? 91, that big winter they had in 91, turned my head around. And I came out to LA in 92 and was like, I, I, I'm, I gotta get out here, this sunshine in the middle of January, this is like, I have to do it. You know, it's crazy, because I mean, before my girlfriend moved out here, I for a year and a half I was going back and forth, back east, 
and I went back for like three weeks at Christmas time, and it was it wasn't it wasn't the snow one like this year, like this past year, but it was. You forget living out here for twelve or thirteen years. You forget like how to put gloves on and how, how you know you <laughs> sit there and you go and, how, and you need them back there. Yeah, you need and, them. and you sit there and you go, wait a second. She's like, I said, I'm walking up to the store, and she's like. Make sure you bundle up. And in LA, it's like bundle up. It's like, oh, wait, it's a little cold. I'll put a jacket on. Here, it's like you put the flannel shirt on and then over the sweater and then the jacket. And it's like, you have once, to be dressed. Yeah, once you, once you live out here, you can visit, but you really can't live back there. It would drive you crazy. You can't. I had a place here and there. I did the whole bi coastal thing for about two years. For about two years, and then until I realized, I never go back there with any type of zeal. I never want to. I just I want to go and be there for a little bit, but only up until the fall. No winter, right. no winter right. visits. Nineteen ninety four, day of the earthquake. That's when I moved out here. That's when I decided to move out here. Nineteen ninety four, January seventeenth. I moved out here, and then the earthquake happened. Yeah, I moved out here. Got here that 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 evening on the sixteenth, like five thirty. Went to dinner, stayed in um, Seinfeld's guest house that night. Earthquake hits, 4.31 in the morning. Boom. Wow. And I was so stupid, I slept through the aftershocks. <laughs> well, it's funny. When you don't know what an earthquake is, you go, you know, it's like, I mean, that one was big, but like the first, like I finally felt some earthquakes out here a while ago, but you just, you don't, you don't notice it. You sit there, I mean, you'll be on your desk working and then you, you'll see a shake and then now it's like, what's that an earthquake? And then you go on the Facebook, earthquake, earthquake, yeah, earthquake, yeah. earthquake, earthquake. That one was a big one though. I mean, the yeah. chimney next door to that house hit the, the, the guest house. The chimney next door of the person's house next door hit that. I'm still asleep. I get up. I come upstairs. They, uh, you know, assess the damage, and uh, there's a couple of things broken. And I went back and went back to sleep. My mother was trying to contact me. So later that day, you remember all the phones were out. People couldn't right. reach people. She goes, well, "What would you do?" I said, "I went back to sleep." She goes, "You can't go back to sleep." Seven aftershocks I slept through. Damn, <laughs> I do it. So you move out here, and I know now. Now, what do you do when you first get out here? You know, are you are you start hitting stand up, or do you start hitting stand up and start? And, and you know, I had an agent, and I was going out for stuff for pilots. I had a couple of these holding deals. You know, that may have been what really brought me out here. I had a holding deal to do this show uh, that uh, Chris Maloney was on. You know, Chris okay. Maloney did it. <laughs> Chris Maloney and uh, the girl that passed away, Brittany. Brittany Murphy. Okay. That's a little girl. She was on this show, you know, was about I played a sound guy for a guy who shoots commercials. So and I had a couple of those deals, you know, and nothing ever went to pilot. But when I would get these holding deals, I thought it was great. You know, they give you, I don't know, forty five thousand, fifty thousand dollars to hold you and you, you know, do this pilot and it doesn't go anywhere. Then the next year I got another holding deal. And then after I was like, this is weird. How come how, how come some people are getting these things to go? I must be doing something wrong. So I thought about going back and taking acting lessons again after that. But then I just started to concentrate on the stand-up, you know. Now, did you ever do writing gigs? Never did writing gigs. Not, don't feel my strength. And I don't want to sit in a room with a bunch of comics just fighting to get stuff in. It just seems weird to me. I just It seems too aggressive and, you know. Now, now I know you've you've opened for Chris Rock and you've uh, opened for Jerry Seinfeld. Now, how did those relationships cultivate? Did they cultivate like you said? Did you become friends with Chris in New York when he you passed before him? And was that was that a long? Yeah, we were all friends. We were all friends before all of that happened. Like, be, <laughs> Chris, <laughs> yeah, Chris is funny. He just he I, I opened for him because he feels like I'm just one of the funniest guys. He he used to say that I, I speak in bits, you know. <laughs> and half the time he gets upset if I don't do some of this funny stuff on stage. Okay. He gets upset. And then being on the road with a comic, you know, that's working like he's working and being a headliner. Every now and then some of my stuff would drift onto the stage. <laughs> with him, he would drift onto the stage, which is all right. It's fine. That's how comedians bounce stuff off each other. But he says, you're not going to do that business. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I, I'm going to do that, you know. So that's how that started. We just became friends. And, you know, friends like to use other friends. Right when they're when they're on tour, you know, you want to be with somebody that you're familiar with, you know. So it was a perfect fit for that. And plus, you know, the Chris Rock show. I started doing that after a while. I just wanted these guys. I just only wanted to work where I wanted to work. I didn't want to go out and try to fight to get my own sitcom and this and that. When I started working for these guys, it was good. I was a great utility man. Yeah, that's, that's always good though. It's something that, you know, but it's not funny because you've seen. You know, I'm. Sh it's just weird to see. You know, how people's careers go. Like you saw Chris at the. Uh, 
you know, in the clubs in New York. And now when you open for him, it must be a cushy. I mean, it's like it must be a great gig for you because it's a cushy gig. It's a beautiful gig. And it's a gig that most people would look at me and go, how the hell did you do that? You opened it for Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld. And the money was great. The money was good. And you get to travel, <laughs> private jets, you know. It was great for me, but it, it put me on a cushy rock bottom is what I want, what I call it. You know? Now, you were in Pootie Tang. I was in Pootie Tang, yes, yes. Now, are you friends with Louis, too? Friends with Louis, too, okay. yeah. yeah. Louis was, uh, I think he was the head writer for the Chris Rock show for a couple of seasons, you know. I know Jeff Stilson and, and Louis, you know, yeah, I'm friends with Louis. Didn't Stilson move to Australia or something like that? Yes, moved to Australia with his wife. And I think he's Mo back. Moved to Melbourne. I don't know if he's back or not. She's still Australian. Okay. I'm sure he has, I'm sure he has, he has a house down there. You know. So so the stand-up, now do you still, I mean, okay, what's it like working with Jerry? Because I think, like anything, it's, um, well, I always say, it's not like working in a club. It's not. Because and th this audience of his is so, uh, they're so seasoned and so, so prepped for comedy. It's really one of the easiest gigs in the world, you know. You go up there, these people are ready to laugh. Uh, you you got to be clean, which I have no problem with. It's fine for his show. You do fifteen to twenty minutes clean, and the audience it's it's a no miss. It's so easy. It's so easy that it's made me spoiled. You know, you don't even have to really really try to be funny because it, they're there and they're ready to laugh. You know. Now, how often you're on the road? With, and how often do you go on the road now? I mean, I've started putting my own act back together as of about three months ago, but I go out with him maybe once, uh, twice a month, and the other stuff I do myself, you know. Now, do you hit the road by yourself now? I, mean, I do, I'm, and, and that's opened up a little bit more starting in November. Now, that must be weird because you're going from doing, you know, <sighs> the 15 to 20 to a crowd that paid a ton of cash, yes. and they're there to see Jerry. They're there to see comedy because they, they appreciate comedy. But no, you're things. right. They're there to see Jerry. And when they go to see Chris, they're there to see Chris. The great thing is when people see me come up with Chris, they've seen me. They know I'm part of his whole okay. camp, you know. And they go, oh, and this guy. And everybody, even the audience feels like, hey, you should do more than 25. You should do more than 20 minutes. What's, what's going on? That's why it's such a cheat for me. I'm right. a legitimate headliner. I can right, do exactly. an hour. And I can just squish 20 minutes in there. So you can kill them. You can really kill them and leave them wanting more. You know, so I don't mind that it's... It's their show. That's fine. I'm going to see them, but they'll see something in addition that's a seasoned veteran that they understand. This guy should be doing more. I've been right. getting that so much. He should be doing more. So to answer your question, how is it to go from 16,000 16, people at the, at the O2? Well, my, friend, my, my friend saw you. A buddy of mine I went to college with who's a pilot, and he had to move to Louisville. And he was out here, like he every once in a while gets a trip to Burbank. We met for dinner. He goes, yeah, I saw Seinfeld. And uh, you know that guy, Mario Joyner? I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, he saw you somewhere in Louisville. It was like a year okay, ago. Okay, okay. But it's just, but it was a, it's a big venue. So yeah. it's crazy. So, and you're doing, as I said, it's a, it's not, and you know, I mean, you're a seasoned veteran. You know, back the, the crappy one-nighters, the oh. John Schuler gigs, the Rick Morgan gigs. I have stuff. to go back to them and I'm relishing it because here's why. I've gotten to this point where I'm, I'm the one guy that's open for these guys. Like Chris Rock opened, uh, did the O2, uh, 16,000 people. Well, I went up before him. <laughs> so he jokes, he's like, you bastard. You know, I got to open, I got to do this room before him because of him. You know? Right. So he jokes about that. So it's no, funny. What, what room is that? What room is that? The O2 in, in, in London. Okay, so that was the, the, the first show ever was Chris Rock? He had the record as a comedian that weekend. May twenty May twenty seventh or something like that, two thousand eight. But here's the funny thing. Right after that, those records get broken right away. Ricky Gervais comes in three weeks later, Lee Evan comes in, you know, so we laugh about that too. I got a Guinness Book of World Records plaque. Okay, you do. <laughs> yeah. They gave me one too because I went up and he went up after me, you know. So they give me that. It's off a show, but I have it. But um to go from that and now you have to go back to working smaller places, venues, I could work some thousand seat places but my whole idea is to go back to the actual clubs and build the act back up which is another project i'm working on called cushy rock bottom you know mario joiner it has to rise up from a cushy rock bottom it's been a cushy ride opening for these guys and <laughs> you know doing 20 minutes well go do your hour right now you go do your hour now what's that project is that are you going to film that or, or well here's what happened i already filmed an intervention it was called the intervention of mario joiner at first where Jerry and Chris and, and Louis and all these guys fire me and won't, won't hire me until I go do some of these great bits that I seem to do and then drop, you know. You so don't they, do them on stage? Huh? I don't do them on stage. I'll do them on stage, but I drop them. Why? 
This, this is the question because someone needs to have an intervention and okay. smack me upside my head <laughs> and make me do it. So they fire me and won't hire me anymore. You know, so that's what that show's about. Now I already shot the actual intervention of Jerry and Chris and, and George Wallace sitting me down, going, "You're not working with us no more." I go, "What? You, you have to go. This is crazy. You're too funny to be opening for us. You're too old and you're too funny. Just go do your own act." What about that bit about going bald? You don't do that. Chris goes, "What about the bit about your girl, your your lesbian sister taking your girlfriend? What about the bit about your brothers uh, shooting people? That's a whole." Whole damn special right there <laughs> so they do that they push me off and make me go and write my whole act my whole act out so you're starting up from i guess you know your bottom even though you're going in headlining now i mean it just how do you feel with the crowds because as i said you know everyone knows comedy club crowds there's always that one idiot oh. and they pay and and it's a big thing if they pay 15 dollars, and if they don't laugh at the mc they think they should get their money back and not like someone pays 75 and they have to get the drink. And you always get drunk. I did a Dude. show because I got out of it for a long time. And when I go back to see my girlfriend, I did a show and I, I featured at the comedy club in Bristol, the comedy works in Bristol, Pennsylvania. And I, I go on stage and I, I hadn't been on stage for a while, but I said, I want to make some money when I'm back there. And just, drunk idiots like just screaming in the back and, and the club owners don't do anything I don't miss that at all yes. and I'm going to try to avoid that I would like to have it so that I have to go and for the funniness of the show you know this show is going to be like a reality shot type show where this guy's going back and you show that he used to be on private jets used to open for 3,000 people now I'm in a car driving to the gig or whatever you know and stand at a best western not a four seasons you right know? right because you have to you have to just you know you have to uh, downsize to get back to getting those bits together. You have to do them in a place where people don't really know if you're funny or not, or it's not easy. So working clubs like that is the thing that I will have to actually do to build that muscle back up, you know. Now do you have do you have gigs set up or I, I sort of have gigs set up, but they're set up under the uh, umbrella of, you know, when when we start shooting the show, we're gonna go to these places and I'm gonna let them see me in a place that's got, you know, eight people <laughs> West Side Comedy Club. 10 people, 15, and show that we're working on these bits. What I did, when they gave me that little talking to, I went home and I wrote down all those bits that they mentioned and other things that I have dropped over the years. And the titles are nice. I put them on post-its and put them on the wall. So there's like 81 of them there. So I get to pick from those and go to try to work that out and build an hour or a one-man show. Now, do you, has your, I mean, I, I wouldn't change, it's, you've been in the business for 31 years. Has your writing style changed or has your, has your, persona on stage changed i mean how, what yeah, how, i has. mean how does it because everyone goes through stages you know and you look you know people you know you're we talking about a friend of mine who you know he was just on a uh, america's got talent and you know back in the day he tried the guitar he tried impressions and now he's finally doing the stand-up but like for you when you started out i mean what was your act well, how would you consider your act when you started out well just to give you an idea when i did <laughs> comedy tonight my ending bit was the ham bone you know what ham bone is Okay, okay, okay. I, I end it with the ham bone because I'm one of the greatest ham bone people in the world. Are you one of the best? I'm this one of the best. Do you have a Guinness, so I did that. Do you have a Guinness plaque for that? The best <laughs> I, I should. I, when I was in high school... And it, We're going to look into that, they but there's a Guinness to, record. People used to lose it when I was in high school and in college. So anyway, I end it with that. That was my closer. Okay. Because <laughs> it was very uh, animated, you know? You got to find that clip. Yeah, I had to, have to find and, it. There's, there's probably so many... Like, if, if, you got, it's, if you get the Comedy Tonight clips... There's probably so many acts that would sit there and go, oh my God, because uh, everyone was on that. I mean, I'm sure Rosie O'Donnell was probably on I that. looked awful. I looked like, like a little high top fade. I was, anyway, so I, <laughs> I, I, I did the ham bone, and uh, that was my closing bit all over, everywhere I went. <laughs> so after I started doing TV, I got a little bit better. You know, you're just so green. You think you're good. You're awful. I was awful on that, on that show. I can't watch myself. It's unbearable. But by the time I did Letterman in 1989, I was pretty polished and refined and had like about 25 minutes of material that I knew was TV worthy. Now, what was that I like doing, doing Letterman? Because back then, there was, you know, there wasn't as much as cable. Late night was back then was much bigger. Like you did these shows and people, a lot of people watch it. A now lot all, of people watch it. Now you have all it. these different things going. And that's when Letterman was on at 1230. And I know when I was in college, I graduated college in 86. Letterman had a very tight college crowd because we would get stoned and then watch Letterman. That's dude, what everyone would do. Dude, it was so great because when I did Letterman, I thought being on MTV was the thing that made me uh, uh, big in the colleges. When I did Letterman, that's the year, that 1990, when I went to NACA, that's when, you know, 
because you you were validated now. You know, as as the half hour comedy hour, I was the host. So sometimes they come out to see, you know, uh, this guy. He's like, I was, I was basically a VJ, you know, to be honest with you. But then they saw you do stand up, sincerely on Letterman. Yeah, it it raised your profile a little bit, you know. So yeah, were you nervous? Because I mean, that's very a nervous, big very thing. nervous. But the thing was, I was really prepared for that. I was, I was really prepared for it. You, I could have did that set with people poking, you know, in my face. I could have stood and did that set the first three sets they were i knew they would work because i'd worked them so much they were like a, a hammer you know so you did that so then so how is your act since the hand bone from the letterman that's what you think <laughs> how now how do you sit there and now i want to work longer form i don't want to do just you know i work more like a one-man show now like i'm in my own little world you know because i talk about things that maybe people don't really you know talk about like i'm in my 50s single no kids black man never been arrested never did drugs you know got three thug brothers that's a thing that i talk about you know uh dating women half my age people say you're going through a midlife uh, crisis i say it feels like a midlife christmas right a crisis what's, what's what's the crisis about you know i don't get in trouble the women are all of age you know i don't hit women you know right. i don't do anything crazy this is a beautiful time in my life right now this is a midlife christmas that's what that's, this is that's funny no it's funny because i think a lot of acts doing that as they get as they get older they're like they don't want to do the bits they want to tell it's almost like storytelling exactly and that's what i'm working on because i'm i i was diagnosed with congestive heart failure i'm healthier now but i'm working on something where i sit there i want to talk about actually you know not even being 50 and have to go with a heart thing and the, the whole deal of the hospital and my years of going to different hospitals for different things and i think because once you start telling stories the, the stand-up sort of gets boring to you then because you're actually exposing yourself well and you got to watch that too because another thing is you don't want to like I, I started wanting to tell stories i did this one man show you know what happened to mario joiner i go back home to pittsburgh and to start talking about things that i never talked about before in my family and i go back and try to examine those guys and tell these little stories but what you want to remember is being a comedian you got to make those stories funny and the only way to do right. that is with jokes whether you i don't know great callbacks or you got to remember when you're telling a story, it's got to be a funny story, and the best way to do that is to drop some jokes. Oh in yeah, that story. I, you see Billy Crystal do it. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I went to see Billy Crystal's one man um, show, and I was never a big, big Billy Crystal fan. But when I was trying to do a one man show, the guy that wanted to produce it said, "You should go see this show." I went to see Seven Hundred Sundays, blown away. I have to watch. I the know man it was... talked. He talked the whole movie, and he kept it going. Kept it going. Well, I know that's the thing. Yeah, I think the story time, but yeah, you do need to make it funny, you're right? Yes. And that's the thing. And that's where I think it comes in, you know, being a seasoned comic. Like some people, it's a big thing is storytelling. If you haven't really done comedy, you can just tell stories. I don't think you have the chops to pull it off. I mean, exactly. You, you, people have to listen to you for an hour and you're, you're talking. That's a long time. You have to be funny. That's a long time. You have to be funny unless you're trying to do one of these uh, heartstring uh, one man shows. I've seen some of those, you know, where these actors get up and they really they can tell a story. But as a comedian, they're in tune for your rhythm, and they want to. You have to be funny and tell jokes. And you know, I can do that. I can tell a story and go. This is getting boring. So I just, you know, you drop some jokes in there with organically within the story. You know, all this stuff is stories. Like my brothers um, being shooters. I have three brothers that are shooters. You know, that's a whole story about my brothers shooting somebody, and the other brother shot somebody, and the other brother. So I said, I'm the only one that's a non-shooter in a right. family full of shooters. You know, and they all think I'm the weird one. When you go shoot somebody, man, what's wrong with you? You're holding up the click, you know. <laughs> See, that's, that's funny. And I think, yeah. that, but that also comes from, as I said, from your years of comedy that you can pull it off now. Because one, I think, is you have the confidence. And I think also what happens is if, and it's like anything, we all, because all comics, we get a little frightened on stage. Mm -hmm. Like if something starts going the wrong way. But you also know if you're telling a story and it starts going the wrong way, well, you can veer off into a bit that probably relates to that story and get the whole crowd back. And or that, or better yet, have that bit, have that there. Make right. the story part of it anyway. That way, the veering off probably doesn't even happen. You can be so focused on it. If it's written right, you don't care when the people are not laughing because you know what's coming and what's coming and what's coming. Do you know what I'm saying? It's great to go a long time, like maybe like a Larry Miller, where you go and do these long stories, and the punchline is so good at the end, everything's just set up, you know, set up. I mean, you got to have the, the chops to do that and, and the cojones to do that, but he does that very well, Larry Miller. He does that where you right. do these long stories, and you go, oh, my God. Well, Thank what, God it paid off. Of course it's going to pay off. Woody Allen did that. You yeah, look, he look builds the moose to story. It. He goes, you sit there, and you go, you're laughing your ass off during the moose story, and then you're like, okay, and then he kills it with a, a joke that's just funny and it says something it's not like a goofy thing you know so it's now, well thought out well well written now how often do you write are you, do you are you one of those people that sits down and 
says I'm gonna write now or just stuff pop stuff pop in your mind and no you I, I, I write it I write when I, I don't write as often as I should but when I want to do a bit I'll write that bit out I'll write it out you know like do you handwrite yeah yeah well I, I use computer sometimes too but I'll, I'll handwrite it sometimes but I like to put it on a computer and put my bits in, in a little uh you know outline where you can pop open the you know like let's say uh AIDS paranoia. I did a bit of AIDS paranoia. That's I say that because that's it's I alphabetize it also. <laughs> so AIDS paranoia. You click on that, open it up, and you'll see what the bit is. Okay. You know? you see what the bit almost like a, like a book. And I read it and go yeah. And then you do it when I do it. Once I become familiar with the words, I do it like it's a bit. You know. And the bit is uh, you know uh, there was an AIDS paranoia going for a while. I was so paranoid about AIDS. I start wearing glasses uh, just because you know I I didn't want you know people to spit in my when they talk to me. You know. <laughs> I wear contact lenses before I let let that happen, you know. So I was doing that, and I talked about how AIDS was. Uh, we're going to find a cure for AIDS, but it, it'll be something we never suspected, you know. We're going to be happy and sad. Uh, we found a cure for AIDS. We're happy about that, but we're sad that we had no idea that it was flat Pepsi. Right. We did not know that when Pepsi loses its carbonation, it could actually suppress the, you know. <laughs> and that was one of these bits that you know these guys was like, why why would you stop doing that bit? Right. Why would you stop doing that? You have to do that. You, you have you done it in, in, on the show? I go, no, I've never done it on TV. Have you done it? In, in an hour special? No, I haven't done an hour special. They're like, you can't work for us no more. You have to go finish those That's bits. That's so fun. Such a good idea. Yeah. We have a few minutes left. Um, so now, do you have, do you have any, uh, are you going with Jerry, out with Jerry or Chris in the near future anyway? I just got back from D.C. with him, and I'm going out again. Well, I'll be doing the Christmas show in December. And I think the next time I'm out with uh, Jerry is uh, beginning of October in Kansas City and uh, somewhere near Kansas City. To take two shows, two uh, cities every weekend, and bounce around to those. But the Chris thing, I'm trying to incorporate Chris's tour, which is about to start. I'm trying to make that a real life thing where I was intervened upon and can't work the tour. Okay, so I'm going to make that. So he's going to get another. <laughs> he already does. He has another um, young comedian that's going to be going on. And just imagine me showing up for work, going, "What's going on? What's your honor? You know, uh, Hannibal Burris is doing the tour now. Okay. You know, and I'm trying to incorporate that in a sort of like a reality show type of mockumentary thing that's actually going we're trying to coordinate that and make that happen okay so now, now the digital dan now are you you're shoot, are you are you shooting a lot of stuff now or what do you how when how? i leave here today i'm going to go shoot another one of the updates for digital dan called uh, trapped in a pdf <laughs> now how long is the updates when you shoot them well the updates are like a minute i'm trying to make those a minute but um when we shoot the other uh first episode of it the jarbine virus is how they how he got how he came to learn how to how he came to communicate with them, you know, that's going to be like two and a half minutes. But these updates are just to keep the campaign going. And I haven't posted one in a little bit, so I want to shoot one of those. And uh, I already shot the green screen stuff for the actual devices. I have to go shoot my side of me talking to them. Now, do you write it all or does someone else help you write it? No, I write all that myself. And now, who, who directs it? I do. I direct it myself, too. Now, how do you do that? Just, well, you, you know, write it down. I know what I want to do. And I have a guy that's shooting it with me and another editor. Well, the editor helps out a whole lot. And I got an assistant that helps me uh, set the camera and shoot it. And just uh, a girl that, you know, reads the lines back to me, you know. But the green screen stuff, I'll go in with the actors and go to a green screen studio and tell them, look this way. Because when I'll be sitting at the desk and Mario will be here okay. and you'll be like that. That's, so that's all the directing that, that, that needs to be done on that. And I just direct myself with just doing my lines and have them guide me through it when I'm like today this, this guy Dan will guide me through what I have to say and make sure that my eye line is right. So. Are you having fun doing the project? Are you really I am. It? No, no, this is really, really fun. And you know, projects like this, I just love stuff like this, you know, because it's creative, it's new and I want to do something different. I want to do something different that may be slightly offbeat, slightly quirky. <laughs> so these things, I really love doing stuff like this. Yeah. We'll give all the info again on the uh, on the uh, TubeStart. TubeStart.com. Go to TubeStart.com and uh, click on Digital Dan and pick one of those perks and give me some money so I can finish this thing. And where else can people find you? Are you, do you tweet? I do tweet. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, at Mario Joyner, I believe it's called. Hashtag Mario Joyner. I also am on Facebook, and I have a Facebook fan page that I'm having trouble getting up. For some reason, because I have five thousand friends. Okay, you know, if you have five thousand friends, these people at Facebook know that those are not your friends. You should have a fan page, right? So I've been trying to transfer it over for the last week or so, and I'm having trouble. So if anybody knows anything about that, you know, let me know. But I'm on Facebook, Twitter, 
And uh, MarioJoyner.com is my website. I want to thank you for coming in. It was, it was a good Thank you for having me. I've seen you on TV many times. And I, I always love when I see people on TV and I get to meet them. And uh, so anyway, people, so yeah, check it out. Uh, go check that uh, project out because it's funny. It's on. I watched the, the intro. It's very funny. And uh, follow me at Twitter, at CooperTalk. Also, you can send me an email, cooper.talk at yahoo.com. We changed some email stuff here, so that's my email right now. Go to my website, www.coopertalk.net. I have, I don't know, like 280 episodes up there. You can also go to Stitcher or iTunes, type in one word, Cooper Talk, and all the episodes are there. And if you have an a Android device, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk, and you get my app, so you can listen to my show on your phone. And uh, yeah, every Tuesday I host crappy comedy at Jimmy's Place down in San Fernando Boulevard in Burbank. No one really shows up, but it's a fun night. You know, we just play in front of me and like four other comics I like. So come out and come support that. And uh, yeah, as I said, follow me on Twitter. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, people. Drink your water. Eat your vegetables. Take your vitamins. You guys have a wonderful weekend and be safe out there.